This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone. This is Connie Dolan, one of the faculty with the University of Maryland PhD, and this is one of our podcast series. I'm joined as usual with Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the palliative care program at the University of Maryland. And we are really honored today to be talking with Dr. Stephen Connor, um, whom many of you may not know, but he's really been a formidable presence in hospice and palliative care since the beginning, even before the hospice Medicare benefit. Um, so Dr. Connor has worked continuously in hospice and palliative care as a researcher, as a licensed clinical health psychologist, which we haven't heard that many from some. So this will be good for you to sort of hear another discipline. Um, he's been a consultant. He's been an author, educator, and an executive. Um, he worked at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization as the Vice President for Research and International Development. And now um, he has really shifted his focus more to international development. And he is leading um, the Global Alliance of National and Regional and other hospice and palliative care organizations in 86 uh, countries. So that's only a small part. Um, so Dr. Connor, I'm gonna let you give a little bit more about yourself and who you are and where you've been. Great, Connie. Nice to be with everybody and uh, really thrilled that uh, we're uh, seeing a new sort of generation of leaders come uh, and emerge uh, in hospice and palliative care. You're needed. <laughs> we uh, will be very happy to have, have your contributions to take the field to even better places than we've been. Certainly, we have plenty of challenges. Um, so uh, Connie mentioned I'm the uh, chief exec for the Worldwide Hospice Palliative Care Alliance. It's uh, Alliance of, uh, of over 350 um, organizations in 102 countries presently. Um, these are the palliative care associations, the regional associations, the national associations, and lots of provide some providers, but academic institutions. Anyone who's really interested in hospice and palliative care and uh, seeing that we succeed uh, all over all over the world. Uh, but I did. Uh, as Connie said, start out in the United States um, at, at, uh, in Monterey um, at the, uh, what was at that time, Hospice of the Monterey Peninsula, it's now Hospice of the Central Coast. Um, and it was an interesting journey getting there. I had uh, uh, been working uh, just, you know, initially in my career with um, heroin addiction treatment and kind of got uh, a little uh, burned out on that just kind of because it was, uh, you know, be basically people, you know, um, who are were trying to, to get a, who had been arrested for possession of heroin or some other um, illegal drugs and were sent in diversion to see someone, you know, to work on their addiction problem, but most of them didn't really want to be there anyway. So I went to uh, a, uh, the first session of the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, which was in um, 1974, and um, had a kind of epiphany, which was that uh, I was at that time uh, um, studying a lot of Eastern religions and kind of into the, that whole thing. Uh, and 
felt like um, I should be working with cancer patients instead of heroin addicts. That you know there was so much suffering involved, and that <clears throat> we had uh, uh, that you know that we had we had just heard about hospice um, uh, in the in the UK in the United Kingdom uh, at St Christopher's. Uh, anyway, so I went back to Monterey, spent some time working with an oncologist named Jerry Rubin, a different Jerry Rubin. Than <laughs> Uh, but Jerry, who died recently of cancer, which was quite sad, um, uh, was um, running what he called the Cancer Recovery Project, which was um, a support group for his cancer patient, uh, the patients he was caring for. And I offered to help lead the group with him. And so we kind of formed a partnership. And then after, you know, uh, uh, we, we, all the patients kept dying. Uh, we were trying to get them to use visual, visualize their cancer, their treatment, and how they were, you know, uh, participating, improve their wellness and health. But they all kept dying. So, and most of them wanted to talk about what their hopes and fears were, and things that you know were because um, they couldn't talk to their families about it usually. So we um, we did a lot of work with them um, and learned from them. They taught us what the, you know what, what people need when they're facing. Uh, the knowledge of uh, impending death. And um, so we decided we'd start a hospice in 1975. So we started the, the, that hospice, just all volunteer. You know, when we began, we just built it from the ground up based on some of these principles we'd learned. Uh, we did, we trained ourselves, you know, kind of self-learned uh, how to do palliative care. At that time, the term palliative care wasn't really in use. Balfour Mount, who was um, a, a physician in um, uh, Canada had coined that term because in Ontario, in French Canada, in, in French, the word hospice is associated with a poor house. And so he um, coined that term instead of hospice, he used palliative care, which is you know, the cloaking and the covering up of symptoms and uh, uh, making people comfortable. So he, um, uh, anyway, so we, we, we uh, this was well, long before the hospice Medicare benefit came along. So we were scrimping and getting money from the community and just trying to put, you know, together some services started out with home care, bought a house in Carmel Valley, uh, um, refurbished it. Well, it was a nightmare uh, because of the lack of any regulations covering what we were doing. Uh, and certificate of need in California was very tough. But we managed to finally finally open it. We had uh, support from our local congressman, Mr. Leon Panetta, who went on to uh, be the, um, the House main sponsor for the Hospice Medicare Benefit. And, and then I went on to, uh, I was brought up to San Francisco to start hospice in San Francisco just before AIDS hit in 1979. We were there for, uh, I was there with, in that program for about uh, three and a half years. During the start of the um, HIV epidemic, we helped get the coming home hospice going for um, men who had sex with men in the city. And uh, then I basically, you know, there was not enough money to really run it. We were doing a kind of coalition hospice with money from San Francisco Foundation. And I just said to the board, I don't think this is going to work. Um, so um, I went off. Anyway, I ended up uh, helping start um, hospices at in the Kaiser Permanente system for 10 years, I was there on the front lines. Some of my most rewarding years, as far as, you know, clinically being there every day to, you know, with patients, um, helping them um, process, you know, the fact that they were facing a life-limiting illness. 
And we spread, we did it, we set up a program in Martinez. Um, uh, but at that point, we, my, I was married, my wife and three ch- little children. We, we were in California and we thought we needed to move, we needed to move uh, somewhere less expensive <laughs> to live and uh, just, you know, to kind of get out of the, the The schools were sort of crumbling at that point because of the lack of tax, property tax money to support the schools. So we moved to Kentucky. I took a job running the hospice of central Kentucky, which then became the Alliance of Community Hospices. We formed together with the hospice in Louisville. I was co-chief executive of that. I had a chance to do private practice for five years part time. We were there for six and a half years. And I got the call to, I got on the, I was elected to the NHPCO board, NHO board at that time. Uh, um, and then was tapped to come and, um, become vice president for at that time as research and professional development. So we did the conferences. Um, uh, we, uh, I, you know, helped, helped build the organization. Um, and then, um, we got, I got started around the, around the year 2000, this was in 98 when I went there around 2000 to, um, start working on international development started in Romania and, uh, with a project to help them write national standards. I had been chair of standards and accreditation committee for NHPCO for quite a few years before I came up there. And so anyway, uh, I got bit by the international bug, <laughs> you know, was kind of, you know, done with you know, worrying about things in the US. I thought, you know, I could see so much needed to be done abroad and it turns out that we have a kind of an 80-20 problem. We've got 80% of the need almost for palliative care in low and middle income countries, but 80% of the actual palliative care service delivery is in high income countries. So uh, it's really been a, a, a journey to, to sort of, you know, reverse that trend somewhat by getting building models, indigenous models of palliative care that work in, uh, um, in settings with limited resources. And I think we've learned a lot, um, a lot of the things we take for granted about hospice. Um, Cicely Saunders once said to, uh, to me, you, um, you know, you, you, you don't need to do it the same way. You know, I, I used to ask her, you know, what do you think we should be doing in, in the U.S. about these problems with conflict between palliative care and hospice and all this? And she says, I don't know, you guys have to work that out. But, you know, there's no, nothing set in stone. You can, you, can, uh, you can do what makes sense for the people who need the care where you are. There are different models. Anyway, that's to start us off. So when you think about, um, I mean, it's kind of amazing what you've seen, and that's kind of an amazing uh, legacy. Um, but when you think about, like, you started off in this volunteer part, and then the hospice benefit was kind of being formulated. I mean, what were your thoughts? And um... oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Even... <laughs> <laughs> well, the the hospice Medicare benefit, um, well, in some respects, was a kind of a deal with the devil. Uh, the so the backstory about this is that uh, you know when uh, we wrote the first standards for um, hospice care in the United States, we the very first standard in 1979 that was written was about palliative care. What is palliative care? And um, it was defined in that standard as a combination of curative and palliative therapies um, that maximize, you know, patients. Uh, so in other words, you know, treating 
using curative treatment to help a person live a bit longer or uh, manage their symptoms better was fine with everybody. But um, this, during the Ronald Reagan administration, um, the budget director, David Stockman, uh, sort of said, uh, well, you, can have, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you, if you want to get a Medicare payment model, you're going to have to give up, you know, you're, you can't have curative treatment and, and hospice at the same time. And you got to have some, some sort of cutoff as to, you know, how long people should live. Both of those were terrible. You know, that's a, you know, financial person for, you know, we, we were so desperate to get any payment stream that we just said, and, and we'll throw in bereavement for free <laughs> in the follow-up. So he, uh, he got his way. We got the benefit, but, uh, you know, we've had to live with that ever since. Um, the curative treatment restriction, uh, unfortunately, is what causes us to have such a bimodal distribution of lots of people for a short period of time, a, sm a small number of, for a long period of time, not so much in the middle, which is where we really want people to be getting palliative care for two or three months. So we have enough time to prevent the problems that result in people going to the hospital when they don't need to, and to create a therapeutic relationship with patients and families and, and head off all the problems we know that they're going to encounter. Um, and, in hindsight, Stephen, that like, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, I mean, that's what we want the students to understand. Like this was about, um, negotiation, if you will, right? And kind of reading a timeline yeah. and thinking you want something and you're gonna to have to compromise. You know, when you think back, I guess there's two parts of my question. Are there other parts you wish you maybe had compromised less on and you push for something more? And then the second part is, you know, in hindsight and which is always, you know, 2020, do you feel like that may, that the hospice benefit was the right way to go or not? Well, it, it, it's a, it was a two-edged sword in a way. I mean, you know, the Medicare hospice benefit has been remarkable in, in the fact that the majority of people who, who die in the United States get some palliative care. There's no other country in the world like that. I mean, you know, UK doesn't even come close to that. And they're supposed to be the, the number one sort of leader. Uh, so but they're not getting it for enough time. It used to be the big thing, the big uh, criticism of, of hospice was, yeah, great, but nobody knows about it and nobody gets it. And it was that way for, for many, many years. You know, I think part of the, um, part of what happened when the for-profit sector realized that they could actually make, make a profit off of hospice care, it started to grow like wildfire because the, the smaller nonprofits were, were not too, you know, that weren't that interested in growing all that much. So we sort of, you know, we, we had a, a curve that went kind of like this, you know, gradually up. And then in the 90s, all of a sudden it started to go like this. And then 2000s, and, you know, it's the fastest growing benefit in the Medicare program. Um, and, and uh, you know, there's still good, lots of people who don't get it. And the, the bigger problem is that they get it, but they only get it, uh, you know, a week before they die. Or so, you know, that. 30, 35% of patients are seven days or less. And uh, median is, well, median is three weeks, yeah. Uh, so uh, it's it's brink of death care more than it is, you know, the kind of quality of palliative care that we'd like to see it be. And that is a result of those restrictions because if physicians have to make a six-month prognosis and sign a paper and 
then the patient can't get a curative treatment, then you've got, you know, incentives to wait till the last minute to refer someone to. So do you think it was worth do you think it was worth yeah. it, Connor, to <laughs> say um, we'll make sure the patients give up curative therapy in order to get hospice, or do you wish you had stood firm on that? We didn't have the evidence yeah. at, at that time to to be counter to counter that argument, and you know it sort of had you know some degree of face validity that yeah well, uh, but our philosophy before that I mean was was codified. I mean I have the the original standard that we wrote back then. And it is very clear. It came from actually the International Work Group on Death, Dying, and Bereavement's uh, assumptions and principles about care of uh, dying patients. Uh, because, you know, it was in reality, I mean, we didn't get in the way of those sort of decisions about whether some insurance company paid for treatment or whatever. It was, um, it was just part of the thing. And we would, you know, you're more likely to make better decisions about continuation of aggressive treatments. If you have someone walking along with you who can help you sort of think through where your goals for care, what do you, you know, what's important to you right now? Do you want to, you want to make some, you know, reach some milestone or do you want to just focus on comfort or, you know, um, uh, you know, and we have had some, we've had a few reports. I did one of them that um, research reports that showed evidence for some patients surviving longer with palliative care than those who don't. We're not certainly, we're not entirely sure that's because of palliative care because we can't randomize people, but uh, it is, um, uh, it's, it's certainly from a clinical standpoint. I mean, we've seen so many of these patients who come train wrecks at our door and we get them sorted out and they get, you know, better Personal, personal care. We talk to their families, we base them, we make sure they're getting their medications. And it's, it's certainly reasonable that they might live a few months longer than they would have otherwise if they were overtreated and you know constantly given you know, loads of chemotherapy and that knocks them down or other um, treatments. Uh, but to answer your question, I think uh, we, uh, I, I don't think we should give up on the idea of getting rid of the care treatment restriction. I think it's something. We need to, we, we now have more evidence. I mean, Ira Bayak tried to do that in the Promoting Excellence Program at Robert Wood, through Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. They, they put together a pretty good body of evidence. The problem was they had, you know, I forget a dozen sites or so, and nobody used the same instruments to measure what they were doing. Um, anyway, uh, so, but we've seen that with children, certainly, uh, it, 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 that's we've gotten rid of the treatment, curative treatment restriction for children, um, and I think you could make an argument uh, for adults. Um, I think we need, but a lot of this is in the context of the evolving payment structures that are going to be coming in the next decade, which are going to change everything and um, likely end up um, changing to where we are focused more on people with serious illness um, and serious health-related suffering and uh, not prognostic-based um, eligibility systems, but severity of symptoms and severity of disability, disability um, which makes more sense, which is what, what which we had had in the beginning. 
So, you know, you just you mentioned in that um, the international work group on death and dying. So that's sort of like you were involved in that. And I'm sure that also played into you getting involved in some of this international thought. You want to talk a little bit about that group? Because I think many people don't know about that group and, yeah. and that it still exists and what it does. It's a secret society. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was founded in 1974. In, um, it was Cicely Saunders and uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross were two of the uh, 10 or so people who founded the International Work Group. Um, and uh, it was a chance, it, it was an organization that brought together leaders in the field of death, dying, and bereavement um, to come together um, in an egalitarian way to just sort of push the envelope, to think about, you know, the field, how to develop it. Um, we, we had a model of writing papers that were called assumptions and principles. And so the assumptions are things that are universally true about something in the case. I mean, we've done lots of different ones. I did the ones on psychological, psychosocial care for dying patients and their families. And we, um, we tried to come up with some real, real fundamental basic ideas and then guidance for people on how in the, you know, in the real world you take a sort of universal principle and pull it out. Um, the organization, uh, it d does it still exists? It's it's going fine. I'm on the board uh, there. Um, we meet every 18 months. Um, pandemic has sort of thrown a monkey wrench at things. We were supposed to be in Zimbabwe last year and had to cancel that trip. And then Oslo this year has been postponed next year. Um, uh, it rotates in different parts of the world, so it's we try to only have one out of every three meetings in North America. But it's still a pretty fertile and kind of underground of bringing people together. It's more about supporting leaders in the field. I mean, it, IWG is it's the, the the organization is not so, as important as its function, which is to help build and develop leaders in the field. Um, and to get to be a member, you have to be invited and have to be a member or a leader in your field already, pretty much. So it's sort of you know really enhancing leadership. That's why you said it's a secret society. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit more then about, um, you know, you you did all this interesting stuff. You were there with a the hospice benefit. You were there with NHPCO. And then you make this launch into really focusing on international. Well, we realized that there was no voice for palliative care in the public, in, in the arena where public health, where health policy was being made at the global level. I mean, at the UN, at the... Commission on Narcotic Drugs at the World Health Organization, World Health Assembly. Um, and there was just nobody saying, well, hold on, you forgot palliative care. <laughs> so um, we had the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care uh, formed by Joe Magno back uh, way back in the 80s. And uh, they were focused primarily, on, they were an individual membership organization for professionals working, kind of like American Academy versus NHPCO. Whereas we didn't, the, the providers, the providers didn't have their own sort of voice and their board of the IHP was self-perpetuating it. I mean, it's a great organization, um, but we needed, a, we needed to have uh, a structure where, where, where the um, regional and national organizations could have a voice. And, and IHPC at that time wasn't interested in really doing advocacy work uh, uh, they're now uh, partners. We're all together. We were together with 
with WHO this morning on a conference call about WHO's plan of work for palliative care, we succeeded in getting a resolution on palliative care passed in 2014, which was a huge thing for us because uh, it, it, and it gives everything we wanted, but of course these are not enforceable. Uh, you know, they're aspirational member states unanimously said we need to strengthen palliative care throughout the, through the life course for, uh, within our countries. But we still have uh, only about 12% of the need being met globally of powder, you know. Uh, so, uh, and, and palliative care still, I mean, is looked, uh, is associated with dying still, even though we do our best to try to, you know, say no. It's about um, people with serious illness and the extra layer of support they need and all that. Um, and, uh, but but as far as uh, um, the you know the, the world worldwide hospice palliative care alliance formed for that purpose, and then when the resolution passed, we, we sort of realized, well, who's going to do the work? <laughs> who's going to actually help get out there and help support local leaders, build up local leaders? I worked for. I also, for seven years, worked as the palliative care consultant for the Open Society Foundation's International Palliative Care Initiative, run by Kathy Foley and Mary Calloway. So, about during the year after I left NHPCO, I was the loaned executive to help get WHPCA started. And but in order to pay the bills, I had to work. So I got paid by Open Society Foundation as our consultant. Then I, you know, was working in dozens of countries around the world with them um, to help to help develop leaders in the countries in, you know people who had stood up and said yeah I'm gonna yeah I want a palliative care and there had to be there had to be a champion somebody who wanted to build palliative care in their own country for this to work we had uh, the wonderful uh, fellowship program at San Diego Hospice that Frank and uh, Charles Frank uh, Ferris and Charles uh, developed and um, that, but that just, you know, sort of put a dent in the problem. It didn't, you know, solve, but it was, it was a significant, and then they, they were shut down by the U.S. government. Mm. It's a, a Greek tragedy of sorts, uh, which we don't need to go into right now, but that, we, so we lost that, and then we ended up, um, you know, trying to do the equivalent of getting someone through a fellowship uh, training in palliative care from afar over a three-year period. Anyway, um, still a lot, just just so much work to do. Yet, well, so. it seems also like when you're the international part and, you know, I only have a very small perspective of it, just having taught in different countries and, and traveled. I mean, I think in my mind, you have some countries, you know, like Vietnam or parts of Africa where they're looking at hospice and palliative care because of HIV still, and we don't have that understanding and you still have some places that really look at hospice and palliative care as cancer care. And, you know, in the United States, we're really trying to move beyond just cancer patients, but, you know, I mean, you're much more eloquent about this of like understanding that uh, the context of the health of that country and what are the diseases and what are their access to medications. I mean, I, I could just speak to my experience of, you know, I've um, 
delivered care in Guatemala six times, and this is a population that um, you know, doesn't have access to healthcare. We really focused on indigenous populations, but that means that they're walking you know, six to 10 miles to see us you know, in terms of medications. We can bring some stuff, but as you know from the US government, you have to be very careful about that. Um, and then trying to figure out the follow-up and then you know, doing my work in Honduras, I mean, it wasn't just, you had a lot of people who were interested, but then there's a whole safety issue, right? Even, even for us as visitors of saying, you can't go out at night. <laughs> it's not safe for us to go out. So when you're trying to even travel, and, I mean, so there's just so many interesting parts because of the stru social structure. Um, I'm just sort of curious, like, you know, what are some of the things that you think about? Because um, I know you have much more depth of things than that, that, that when we think about international palliative care that we in the United States, we want our students to understand because if they're only US centric, that's a problem. Yeah, well, um, so there's, there's, we use the public health model to try to build palliative care in these countries that for from WHO, it's the triangle. We actually turned it into a house, which is a much better model. But the basic model is policy, education, medicine implementation. And so you gotta have, uh, you, you need bottom up and top down at the same time. So uh, you need somebody on the ground. I mean, you need somebody there who's starting the program. You need to support them. We were able to do that through uh, the International, through Open Society Foundation, because we gave grants to start home care teams mainly in these countries. The, the, the care is quite different because it's more driven by what we call community health workers. And this is a lesson for us because, you know, we have all these sort of, I call them guild issues, you know, because um, people don't want to task shift. Uh, they, you know, the nurses don't want to let the aides do things that they can do just fine. We don't use volunteers adequately enough. We, um, you know, uh, fortunately we do get, I think, um, palliative nurses, palliative hospice nurses do get a good, I mean, they're, they, they are really managing the patients. Um, you know, they have to get the orders, but if, and now we have a lot of nurse practitioners working in the field, and that's that's I think been a real boon in even PAs. Um, but it, it is remarkable how much uh, we we try. We have a project in Bangladesh that we've been running for five years, which is a you know a laboratory for how to figure out how to provide care in limited resource settings. It's in Dhaka, one of the informal settlement communities um, of Corail and uh, the, the the care is delivered by what we call palliative care assistants who are trained by by us to basically as nurses aides with uh, um, I, you know with backup from um, the medical university and Dakar um, physicians and others uh, come out from there to see the patients when they're having problems uh, and one of the problems with a lot of these community health worker programs is that they're, they, they throw them, them out there without backup. And, you know, you get into a lot of difficult stuff with that. We do have to assure access to medicine. Uh, that is a huge problem right now everywhere outside North America, Australia, and Western Europe. We have 83% uh, of the population of the world unable to access uh, strong opioids for pain relief. Period. I mean, either they don't, either they're not available at all, or they're so highly restricted that you might get an injection 
once a day for 10 milligrams. It, it just is, makes why is, why is this situation? Um, well, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit complicated. Um, people, and this was true in the United States. I mean, when I started working uh, in palliative care, everybody got a few shots of, uh, uh, of Demerol for pain control. That was it. So we had to train our physicians on how to use oral morphine uh, to control pain and other, you know, more sophisticated things. But the basic principle is it's not changed in 50 years. It, it's, you know, oral morphine around the clock, you know, by the mouth, uh, by the clock, you know, to the person's um, needs. And, uh, uh, and and what, what you hear, I mean, what I hear from from the government, well, the governments are afraid of, and, and clinicians are afraid. They're taught in medical school that morphine is a, is a terrible, uh, a terrible medicine that should only be used as a last resort in the most extreme of circumstances. Uh, they're terrified of causing shortness of breath when, you know, after someone has, uh, you, you know, there is a, the only risk of shortness of breath is uh, an opioid naive patient taking a large dose as you know, Glenn, better than anybody. <laughs> and, um, and methadone's a you know, a risk, but by and large, it's a safe, very safe drug uh, for even treating, you know, shortness of breath, of course, with morphine, which you tell them that, and they go, you're kidding. For shortness of breath, that'll stop them from breathing. And they don't realize the, you know, the mechanism that work. Uh, and, uh, but the other problem is the government's there uh there there's a lot of countries that have a lot of illegal uh, medicines i mean when i was working in kyrgyzstan tajikistan and those countries where you've got the quarter of you know drugs coming in from afghanistan a golden triangle up into europe and you know there you know you can buy heroin in bishkek for about the same price as beer wow or, draconian about it you know they're but they don't they don't quite understand the difference between illegal and illicit medicines and illicit use of uh, of controlled substances uh, so we you know we, we try to educate them about that um, and uh, try to overcome some of the fears and myths but in a lot of these countries are small they don't have volume it's really hard to make you don't the drug companies don't make any money on it that's a huge part of the problem because there's no financial incentive for them to do it there's they're awash in fentanyl at the moment but they don't have any oral morphine yeah which is also interesting to me because i know uh, and i um some of these countries like and i'm sure you get involved in this of like okay so you're trying to do palliative care and you're trying to bring in medications but then you're bringing in this medications that we shouldn't be using as first line you know fentanyl patches yeah, yeah, and methadone you know, I wouldn't want just anybody to be using that. No. I mean, so, so you know, but yet you also don't want these people to suffer. So, you know, how do you help some of these um, situations? So we had, we had uh, in 1961, the single convention on narcotic drugs passed. That was the first big global treaty to control um, psychoactive substances, controlled medicines. And that treaty put equal weight on 
availability for medical and scientific use and prevention of misuse. In the uh, decades since, you know, 1% has been focused on, or 5% has been focused on uh, access for medical and scientific use, 95% of the drug control, um, you know, uh, has been around prevention of misuse. And it's, you know, it's, it's sort of silly because the medical uh, grade, you know, morphine is not a problem. People don't generally, I mean, if they're using illicit drugs and making tighter restrictions on access to, uh, to medical uh, analgesics is, um, it doesn't have any effect on the illicit market. I mean, and it doesn't, we don't really see problems with opioid use disorder in palliative care patients. I mean, we have some patients with a history of opioid use disorder, and we have to treat those patients a bit carefully. But usually, I mean, they have pain too, and so it's not a, necessarily a, a problem. Um, you know, if you put in place, you know, some boundaries. Um, it's just, it, and but we have two, two opioid crises. I mean, we got serious problems because. What happened in the 90s is we opened the door to treating chronic pain with, op with opioids and made it okay. And pain was the fifth vital sign, all of it. We all were part of that. I mean, you know, we were pushing access to opioids uh, for medical use, but we weren't. And I would, you know, Kathy and I used to argue about this, Kathy Foley, because uh, I said, well, let's focus on the palliative population. Let's not, you know, be advocates for everybody who has every kind of pain. Um, she and, and lots of other people did, didn't agree with that. And I think, I mean, it was, it was an issue of rights. It was, you know, the, there, was, there were studies done in the early 90s that showed, a, you know, very low incidence of opioid use disorder uh, when people are taking medical um, uh, prescribed opioids. Um, but we were wrong about that. And it's because we didn't understand, um, well, things that, you know, Charlie Cleland taught a long time ago about self-medication. I mean, you know, um, people using medications to sort of um, deal with their, their emotional issues and other problems. We also have all the um, problems with, um, you know, uh, polymorphisms of the central nervous system, which is that we all react very differently to opioids. Uh, some people um, and this was, the, I think this is where that one or 2% rule came. You know, we have people hyper metabolizers of opioids who just like the first time they take an opioid, it's like they don't light up like a Christmas tree. I mean, it's, I've seen, yeah, have been in being involved in opioid heroin addiction treatment. I've seen these, this happen, you know, one, one injection and they're, they're, um, but that's because of their physiology and, you know, and then you've got all these people with, you know, who are depressed or having various emotional problems, self-medicating with, with medicines. We didn't take all that into account. So it's, you know, it ended up being more like 20 some percent of people who were at, at risk. A majority of people still, I mean, don't develop opioid use disorder if they get oxycodone for, you know, a toothache or whatever. Well, now I'm going to switch a little bit and sort of thinking of, so, you know, you are in international work. What are some of the big, biggest challenges? I mean, you've sort of mentioned that the, there's really inequity in terms of access of medications, who can receive services. Um, but what are some of the other challenges that you think are important that our students need to be aware of as they're becoming leaders? Well, 
there's um, a lot of it comes down to political will. Uh, and I mean, every country, especially these countries where there are limited resources for people are paying a lot of the costs out of pocket. You have a two tiered healthcare system. People with money are getting, you know, they can go to private clinics and get whatever care they want. That's good care. Everybody else goes, has to wait in line at a public hospital, maybe get something if they haven't spent all the money for that month's chemotherapy budget. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's a it's a really I mean a two tiered system in so much of the world. That's a big problem. And palliative care is viewed as a kind of a you know uh, added extra, uh, where um, you know we uh, we help them understand that um, really a lot of it is about training people to do to do care differently. I mean education is. Is, is a huge part of this because if we can at least get everybody who graduates from medical school or nursing colleges to uh, have a basic understanding of palliative care, we think probably more than half, probably as many as two thirds of people who have palliative care needs could be managed by their primary care providers if they had training, adequate training. Specialist palliative care uh, you know, is needed for people with more severe Symptom problems, uh, you know, you know, real difficult to manage, toxopathies and things like that, um, and for teaching um, all those people who are doing. But really, um, palliative care should be part of primary care. It should be. Uh, it is the best model of care for non-communicable disease. We spend eighty percent of our money on acute care, but eighty percent of the people have chronic conditions that they're being treated for. It's another 80-20 problem. We should be, you know, reducing the overemphasis on acute care by doing the preventive work of working with people with complex chronic conditions um, and getting them palliative care as early as possible. And um, that prevents them from going unnecessarily to the hospital, which saves the system money. I mean, the whole argument for palliative care and hospice care is we prevent hospital unnecessary hospitalizations, period. That's the whole argument. <laughs> and there's very good evidence that we do, even in low and middle income countries, we're now seeing some evidence, limited amount, Almost most of it is, is from high income countries. Um, but if we have to get in there early enough to do it. You know, a lot of times what we see with this brink of death care is that the referral comes when they're on their way home from the last hospitalization. Whereas if we were in there two months prior, we, they wouldn't have gone to that house, but that last hospitalization. Uh, and that's for health planners. I mean, we just argue constantly having to make that argument. Well, I think you bring up, I mean, and that's something I think we think about also in the United States, like um, kind of rethinking, you know, we moved everything to the hospital. Is it time for us to move things back from the hospital into the community? Oh, and palliative care can do that. And then um, sort of thinking about um, what does it mean? I, you know, I, I'm just thinking about the World Health Organization. They have the two reports, one on integrating palliative care as part of primary care, and then the other on um, uh, building pediatric palliative care, which I know, you know, for some developing countries, you know, children don't live as long just because the diseases that we take for granted. Oh, yeah. Are, yeah. Cancer mortality, 24 percent in the United States, 80 percent or, or more in low and middle income countries. Wow, 80 percent. Yeah. Wow. 
our part of the childhood cancer initiative. Mm-hmm. And we are partners with the International Children's Palliative Care Network, Julia Downey and I. Well, can I ask, do you hold out any hope for improvement on the international oh. front? Oh, uh, we, so yeah, I mean, we, we published this, this little ditty, which is, uh, I edit, it's got the World Health Organization logo up here in the corner, which was, you know, took Herculean efforts to get, <laughs> but this is an advocacy publication. It's a little book that basically tracks how we're doing in palliative care, paints a picture of palliative care globally. And um, we were able to, this is the second edition, so we also have several parallel research projects that we were doing. Uh, one is on mapping levels of palliative care development. Mm-hmm. So we had in 2011, we published in 2014 with data from 2011 that we estimated that there were 16,000 palliative care services globally and caring for about 3 million patients. Out of, and uh, in 2017, when we redid that six years later, we're up to 25,000 providers, um, programs, services, and uh, 700 patients getting palliative care. So we are making progress. It's slow. <laughs> and of course, the, the need for palliative care is ramping up. It's going to almost double by 2060. Um, we had uh, the Lancet Commission report, I think, which has been a great tool for us to use in, in, um, in reframing palliative care to be around serious health-related suffering, not about dying and prognosis, you know, approaches to these things. So, uh, and they, there was a, a package of, minimum package of palliative care in that report uh, that Felicia and all that, uh, with Eric Krakauer did a lot of the work on this. Um, but that package is what we're using to try to get palliative care embedded into universal health coverage uh, benefit packages in countries. The, the world, I mean, the sustainable development goal number three is good health and well being. And in that, 3.6 is universal health coverage by 2030. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> but we're making, but we're making progress. And we're working with those countries that have made a commitment to universal health coverage. The United States is not one of them. <laughs> but we're, you know, we do have uh, a kind of universal coverage because, you know, of the safety net. But um, um, we're, 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 we also just finished a project with our friends in Spain uh, on uh, coming up with a, uh, a agreed set of indicators at the country level for palliative care, measuring palliative care progress. Uh, there are 18 indicators, 10 core indicators. Um, we're pushing for one of the core ones to be the measure for universal health coverage by countries. Uh, we have one for NCDs, uh, but these measures, it's like, you know, the, the old saying, if you don't measure it, it didn't happen. We have to have uh, valid, reliable uh, indicators and, and measures with pu- publicly available data that, you know, can, so it isn't like a Herculean effort for a country to measure something. Like just simply the thing of, how many services are there per million population in the country? Um, is there a national uh, action plan or strategy for palliative care in the country? Um, you know, are they are they budgeting anything for palliative care? Is there an office at the Ministry of Health? Uh, you know, um, 
do they measure quality? We're also um, going to be releasing the results of the quality of death and dying index that comes from the Lian Center that's been done. So we have several tools to sort of measure and prod countries into improving palliative care. And I think we have a we have a good case for support as to why palliative care should be part of every healthcare system. We were successful in getting it included in the continuum of services that defines universal health coverage, promotion, prevention, treatment, rehabilitation, and palliative care. Great. That, that's something I'm proud that WHPCA accomplished uh, in getting the UN to include us because they they didn't they they had you know. They've always, they are always focusing on prevention and treatment <laughs> and neglecting the rest of the good stuff. Like anyway. They are also in the sense of, even though they have a definition, they forget that all of us are going to die at some time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I've the decided I'm not. <laughs> the death rate is stubbornly stuck at 100%. <laughs> um, so like Stephen, you know, there's a lot and it, you know, you, it seems like you've persevered and you've pivoted from starting hospice to then thinking about the research part on U.S. spaces to then the global part. Like, are there things that you're worried about at this point? Uh, well, um, corruption is still a big issue. Um, you know, sucking away resources that should be, to, you know, used for the public good. That's happening in more of the world than we like to think. Um, uh, that's tough to fight against. Uh, we are, you know, staunchly, um, you know, no, we don't take we, we don't take bribe. We don't bribe people <laughs> to get what we want. Right. We had a, 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 a nice story of uh, our, our friends at Casa Hospice Sparante uh, in Brazov in Romania had, uh, with funding from a UK charity, uh, built and developed uh, an absolutely first-rate inpatient hospice with daycare and all kinds of bells and whistles. And the government, the person, the office in Bucharest that granted your license to open uh, was demanding a bribe <laughs> from them and they wouldn't do it. And, and it just went on and on until, so they finally decided they would contact the major newspaper in, in Bucharest. And on the front page of the newspaper uh, was uh, a headline that said, Ministry of Pain, <laughs> the Ministry of Health, and the, and the problem with you know them not letting them open. They were open within a week, so you got to be a bit careful about uh, sh you know naming and shaming. Sometimes that can backfire on you, but they uh, they they at that time it worked quite well and they moved ahead. Uh, but that that's a that that is it is a it is a problem, and, and again it goes back to political will. I mean most. Um, you know, the, the prime ministers or presidents of countries, you know, in the ministries have a lot of health problems to deal with. And palliative care is not the top of their list. Uh, and so we just getting it to where, you know, there's willingness. Sometimes it takes um, people in power to have a relative die of cancer, or, mm -hmm. you know, something else or those things to happen. And some of it is, is really about leadership. I mean, you take a woman like uh, Odantunyu Davasurin, who's the mother of palliative care in Mongolia. Mongolia, we have a six level mapping levels of palliative care development scheme. And uh, about 20 countries are at the highest level, the top level. Mongolia is one of them. Because of her, 
uh, absolute determination <laughs> and, and, you know, twisting a lot of arms and training a lot of people and, you know, having uh, the strength just never to give up, to just persevere and to, you know, convince people and, and be passionate and uh, inspirational. She was a graduate of uh, San Diego Fellowship Program. And India has made some good strides, right? With the Paleo yes. and Dr. Raj? Dr. Raj is a saint. <laughs> Force of nature. He's, a, he's wonderful, yeah. And Suresh Kumar, who runs the Neighborhood Network uh, Project in Kerala. Kerala is sort of the, has been the sort of incubator for, uh, for palliative care in India. He also had been the original model that everyone's adapted uh, to do uh, home-based care using community health workers and you know volunteers, they train. They have thousands of volunteers uh, in Kerala that work uh, with patients, along with the aides and the nurses and physicians. So there, there is a, a lack of um, mental health support within palliative care globally. Um, you know, we 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 talk about how important it is. You know our hallmark is whole person four quarters total pain you know managing uh physical psychological social spiritual domains and dimensions of human experience and um but yet um we don't have very many people around uh, in with with this skill set of actually being able to help people with significant uh problems um with with grief, with depression, with anxiety, with all kinds of problems we frequently see. Uh, now, nurses and physicians, we can tra we train them to do a lot of good interventions. They can be quite effective, but we don't have enough mental health uh, support. And yeah. honestly, that's true in the United States too. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I think with hospice, it's required, right? But for the yeah. palliative care programs, the people that they don't usually hire or the social workers or the chaplains and um and so i think you know that's something to true doubt with the pandemic that you know chaplains in particular were in great demand in the right. icus and you know and interestingly it's been a bit of a two-edged sword with the pandemic i mean there it has highlighted the importance of palliative care and healthcare systems even while they've been shutting down you know offering programs around the world and taking the beds for covid patients and seconding you know People, um, you know, Sean and Diane, Sean, Sean Morrison in New York said, you know, they're the, the most requested special key consult in the ICU at Sinai was palliative care. Um, so as you, I think about for our students, um, you know, you've had this long career, you've gone in different places. What would you say to them in terms of thinking about the future and, and stepping in? Well, um, I, I think uh, it's funny when I hear people use the term classic hospice, sort of like classic Coke. You know, they're talking about <laughs> they're talking about the Medicare hospice benefit, and you know, they didn't realize that before the Medi Medicare benefit. I mean, hospice was just doing it, making it happen. You know, whatever it took. You know, people were volunteering time. Everybody was bending over backwards to do what people needed. Um, it was on a you know, not a high volume scale, um, um, but I guess if you're if you're coming in the field now, uh, be prepared for changes in the way things work uh, and the way people get paid because they're not going to keep paying us this much money for hospice benefits. 
in the future. Um, the carve out is going to go away eventually. <clears throat> the Medicare Advantage carve out. Uh, so we're going to see more health systems sort of picking up the torch to some extent and having to deliver some kind of palliative care to the patients that care for. Uh, I, uh, 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 I, you know, I think we need to think more. Need to think more broadly, and we need to be much earlier you know, with patients. I mean, getting them the skills of palliative care need to be brought to bear much earlier. Um, that's been, I mean, demonstrated over and over again. That early introduction of palliative care make it part of oncology practice, make it part of cardiac cardiology practice, make it part of you know respiratory therapy practice. That palliative care should be. Uh, initiated, you know, early on when, you know, patients are sort of midway in their journey of, you know, increasing chronic illness and comorbidities. Uh, and, you know, we don't have to be so wedded to an insurance benefit. I would hope. And hopefully we, you know, we'll just get more, more resources, as we said, shifted from, you know, all that all that money and acute care into community-based care. We need the communities to be involved too. I mean, I think we've lost a fair amount of that. We did preserve the requirement that hospices use, you know, 5% of their, you know, patient care delivered by, delivered by volunteers. Um, but we have um, close to half a million volunteers working in hospices in, in the U.S. We have about 1.4 million, I think, globally. Volunteerism is a huge thing. We had, when we developed the patient evaluation of family evaluation of hospice care, the post-death tool that we used for an HPCO for years and years, it's now been you know, replaced with uh, uh, you know, hospice compare measures, kind uh, of hospice items that the, um, uh, we, we were looking at what are the things that predict the highest scores of excellence for a hospice in the results of those surveys. And we didn't believe it at first. We had to go back a couple of times, Joan Tino and I reanalyze it. Um, but it was, the, it was the percentage of volunteerism that was directed toward the patients in that hospice that actually made, we, what, which, were, which resulted in more what we call top box scores, you know, the fives out of five. And the, you know, 10 out of 10 you know, scale, um, the absolute best score you could get. It was, it was the one, the only thing that we could really see in that uh, analysis that really made a difference was um, the intensity of the use of volunteers. And because people perceive that differently than they do, and no matter how good the nurses are, they're, they're paid professionals. This was the community basically, you know, supporting them. And that meant something very different to people. Well, and I think that that's something, you know, I talk a lot to palliative care programs to say, just because you're a palliative care program doesn't mean you shouldn't be thinking about that. I mean, in this day and age, you know, there's so many high school students, so many college students who have to do community service. And you and I both know the volunteer role has changed. So it may not be patient care, but it may be dropping off meds. It may be dropping off supplies. It may be taking, I mean, so, so as we use the younger generation, but a lot of palliative care programs haven't thought about the fact that volunteerism is so there. And I often wonder it's because 
palliative care kind of coming out of an academic medical center, you know, at least where I used to work, the yeah. volunteers were wives of physicians who wore these salmon pink jackets, and didn't want to get their hands dirty. Well, the role of the volunteers evolved, right? Okay. Yeah. So um, anything else that you would say when you, um, you know, we have these students that we're so excited and they're going to be our next leaders. Um, any, any other sage advice that you would like to leave them with? Well, you're entering a field which is uh, going to just increasingly be in demand uh, as time goes on, like they say, death and taxes. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to see that this, the, the, the demograph the demographers call it the pig and the python. That's um, the baby boom generation moving through the um, age pyramid. And so we're going to see, you know, um, just a big increase in the number of people needing palliative care. And hospice care um, and uh, um, uh, there's plenty of, there's plenty of challenges if, if any of you, you are interested in going uh, working internationally I get a lot of people contacting me and saying um, well I want to go over and help start hospices in other countries but how do I do that and um, it's not that easy <laughs> uh, I tell them well pick a country first of all that you know, you feel like you have a connection to or you have passion about, go make, you know, contact the people there, offer your services free and you know, make yourself useful. Um, um, I had a friend uh, uh, who were, used to run the National Center for Death Education, psychologist nurse, who just decided um, that she wanted to go to Zimbabwe and uh, Carol Wolgren, her, she's, she's been working there for years. And she lives there now, um, and uh, just doing tremendous tree teaching and training and helping out. Um, you know, Eric Krakauer picked Vietnam as his main focus. He's worked in lots of countries like I have, but he he's been sort of single-handedly the one who helped Vietnam get going. Um, there's lots of opportunity, but you have to um, all sort of create your own opportunity. You know, we all create our own realities. So if that's the reality you want, you have to create it. Right. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah, this has been great. Um, I think Stephen, in, in terms Thanks. of thinking about the breadth that you have and you know your lens of being in the beginning and, and that whole part of also just as a leader going from your community out to your state, out to national to international. I mean, that's also another sense of leadership. So thank you very much for your time and your thoughts. Um, I think for our very students, well. just, we've just offered you a whole different perspective of a little bit of difference from United States and in comparison. And so to understand um, some of the things to think about that we have as issues in the United States and then thinking broader and sometimes also being having some gratitude for the things that we have. So thank you very much. I think it's our responsibility, particularly as we kind of get up there uh, in our careers to uh, help nurture and mentor and support people coming into the field. Um, we, you know, we'll, there'll be plenty of challenges. I mean, we'll, I won't see the promised land of, you know, everybody getting palliative care. <laughs> It'll be long after I'm gone, uh, but at least, you know, we can make a dent in it. Anyway, it's been fun being with you both. Thank for, you so much. Thank you. For the program, it, it's really needed and we only have a handful of them in the world. And um, if there's anything more I can do to help, let me know.
Certainly will. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.